Another Way to Play, episode 136. In my journey, I was probably either more on the side of selfish when I was most in need myself. And now probably I'm a bit more on the side of selfless because I've got a foundation. I've just partnered up with the Prince's Trust here in the UK who are, you know, know, basically the Royal Family's Trust for Entrepreneurship. Welcome to Another Way to Play. I'm your host, Hans Strazina, Olympic athlete turned top producing Bay Area realtor. I believe that your success or failure is determined by your ability to compete and win when it comes to your mindset. Twice a week, I talk with other high performers to share the lessons and inspiration that allowed them to blow the roof off their success. So get ready to have some fun, be inspired, and most importantly, learn the skills you need to win in your own life. This is Another Way to Play. I am your host, Hans Strazina, and today we have the pleasure of speaking across time zones, across continents, across cultures, all the way from England with Rob Moore. He's the disruptive entrepreneur, folks, and if you don't know what that means, you're about to. Now, this is a guy who is absolutely killing it in so many different areas and really, truly living out uh, what he feels like is his true mission, um, which is to help a lot of people. It's taking the form of a number of different things, but started in real estate. Uh, He started as a real estate investor, like many of you and myself, uh, and turned that into uh, multi-eight-figure companies, uh, written, I think he said, about 15 or 16 books. I'm starting to lose track. Has two podcasts, has a huge following where he tries to deliver value multiple times a day with live streams. You name it, he's got his fingers in it. In this episode, guys, we talk a lot about the difference between having sort of a existential purpose, uh, mission-driven goal versus like wanting to make enough money so you can retire or drive a Ferrari or something like that, and where you strike that balance. Same thing uh, with, you know, when you start to think about, um, you know, yourself in a, in a pursuit or an endeavor, and when you start to maybe think about others and, and how that directs your energy and your focus and your intention, as well as the content and the uh, energy and the work that you put out into the world. Um, spoiler alert, he talks a lot about a balance in the middle somewhere. Uh, so I really found his take really interesting and refreshing. So make sure you uh, listen up for those examples. And If you're getting value out of this, please head over to whatever podcast player you are listening on and uh, leave it a rating and review because it really helps me grow and get some great feedback and the algorithm loves it. So, so do I, uh, because that's how we get out in front of a few more people. So thanks in advance for that and appreciate all you guys who have taken the couple of minutes to do that. And without any further ado, let's get into it with the disruptive entrepreneur, Rob Moore. Rob, well, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Love, love this format. I've never done it in kind of the reverse like this. So this is cool. <laughs> it's super cool. So I'm honored to be to be in front of your uh, audience as well. And, and thanks for taking some time with me. So I know we have some time zone differences here, but let's just get into it, man. Like, let's talk about uh, first kind of what you've got going on now. Um, you've got the title, The Disruptive Entrepreneur. For my audience's sake, can you do me a favor and kind of tell us what that's all about and what that means? Sure. Well, it wasn't a title that I bestowed upon myself because I would see that as somewhat self-congratulating and a bit arrogant. Um, so I remember um, my company was maybe five years old, Hans. 
we probably were doing about two to three million pounds a year. We probably had a dozen staff. So, you know, we weren't small, but we weren't big. And, and, and this was 10 years ago, maybe. And mm -hmm. I was trying to get a feel for coming up with some values for my organization, which we ended up with progressive, innovative, personal. Mm -hmm. And then a bit of a word or a phrase for mo both myself and my business partner, because we were making the strategic decision to step back from the brand of the company. So mm -hmm. anyone who's an entrepreneur listening, you, you've probably read the e-myth or um, built to sell or work the system or even my book, Life Leverage, which talk to you about being making yourself redundant from your own company if you want to scale it. You know, if it needs you all day, every day, you really have a glorified job. Mm -hmm. um, and I was five years in and the company was doing well because I started with nothing, but I had a glorified job. So one of the ways for me to get out of the brand association with the company was to create my own brand mm -hmm. because everyone knew Rob Moore and Mark Homer from Progressive Property. Rob and Mark at Progressive, Rob and Mark at Progressive. Rob does property, Mark does property. And we were so entrenched, um, it, like Ronald McDonald, you know, if you went and did something else, well, it's, it's Ronald McDonald. And that was how we were. So I got some of my fans, my customers and my staff to, to pick a word that, that described me and what I did. And the word disruptive came up so much that that was where the brand was created. Uh, and since then, um, I, you know, I know a lot of people have issues with the word entrepreneur, what a true entrepreneur is. For me, mm -hmm. I really do identify with that word. I believe I am one. I have multiple companies, hundreds of properties. Um, you know, nine different income streams. I've written 16 plus books. I've got two podcasts. I've got, um, you know, I really do embody the the feeling of being an entrepreneur, which to me is to create, to disrupt, to, mm -hmm. um, you know, to solve new problems. I think entrepreneurs are the future of us mm -hmm. getting out of COVID. And, um, you know, we are the world's greatest problem solvers. Agreed wholeheartedly. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm I'm in the the Bay Area, uh, San Francisco Bay Area, and that concept of being disruptive is quite pervasive around here. Like everyone wants to create a disruptive app. You know, be the next Uber of whatever. Um, what does disruptive actually mean to you, though? Well, in in the UK, we're often about five years behind you, Hansa. In the UK, we're often you know, I mean, America lead the world in you know in, in many technologies in sales, etc. So it's a bit less, I guess, common here. But to me, it means um, shaking up the status quo. It means to think uniquely, creatively. It means to solve the new problems, maybe that your competitors or your market don't know yet need solving. And, of course, mm -hmm. with COVID, it's just been announced here. Hans, I believe it's election day for you and for us. It sure is. Right. Well, they've just put us on a second lockdown, um, literally starting on Thursday. So, you know, many companies are really going to struggle. If you're a hairdresser, a restaurant, if you're a, a, a plumber, you know, all these trades are going to really struggle. But if you're mm -hmm. disruptive, you work out where the new industry is, where the new business is, where the new revenue is, where the people are. And of mm -hmm. course, podcasts and social media and e-commerce and maybe acquiring some of those businesses that are struggling, these are all where the new opportunities are. So I always think it's better to disrupt yourself than to be disrupted by the market or a competitor or a virus. Uh, yeah. I think it's about staying fresh, 
continually innovating, reinventing yourself. My 17th book comes out, um, hence on December the 3rd, called Reinvent Yourself. And I think now more than ever, the ability to reinvent yourself is vital. A lot of people think that money in the bank or a pension is security. I disagree. Mm -hmm. I think it's the ability to um, be resourceful and to reinvent yourself constantly. 100%. You know, I want to get back to the origins of where you started all your companies and the properties and all that stuff. But I, I do want to dig in on one thing, which is you said you got five years into these businesses. You were doing, by all counts and measures, a good solid amount of revenue. You had a lot of properties under management. You were really entrenched in the property world. And then you, to your, to use your word, disrupted yourself and pulled yourself out of that to some degree, not entirely because you're still involved, but you rebranded. Why for you, why, why did you do that? Like what was the first kickoff point that made you think way back then that I can't be the Ronald McDonald of, of this. I can't be stuck into uh, the properties and the you know management and the flipping mm. and whatever other stuff you were into at that moment. Like what made you want to go out and create your own personal brand as opposed to just ride that sucker off, off into the sunset? Because mm. it sounded like it was going well. Yeah. So we're probably about 10 times the size now. And we wouldn't be able to be 10 times the size if Mark and I were operationally involved, you know, daily in the company, we would be a massive bottleneck. No human being can go beyond, let's say, a threshold of 10 hours a day, six days a week. And I'd even argue that's way too much. Mm -hmm. so, um, so we we just wouldn't be where we are today had we not. But to answer your question, to go back a bit, um, my, my business partner and I, we have a vision to be in business for at least another 50 years. Um, my personal vision is to help as many people on this planet start and scale their business and get a better financial education. And I have a foundation that does that for young and underprivileged people. And these were um, these were more overarching than buying properties and selling courses and products um, and packaging and selling on property deals, which were the nuts and bolts products of what we sold. So I guess we, we were just always looking far enough in the future to predict our own problems and therefore mm -hmm. disrupt ourselves. Mm -hmm. Now, I started that progress 10 years, that process 10 years ago, Hans, but it took me quite a long while to fully come out. I retired first about the age of, well, it was before 30. It was about age 27, 28. I had a couple of dozen properties and, you know, enough equity and income to sort of not to cover a basic overhead, a humble life. And I thought that was enough. I had a couple of weeks holiday. My business partner went to Bulgaria and I hated it and I got really bored. Um, and then so we started another part of our enterprise, which was selling property deals on. I became a millionaire between the age of 30 and 31. And that was another for me sort of benchmark of, OK, I feel like I've made it. You know, you only need a million to be a million and you've made it. Well, you need way more than a million pounds mm -hmm. if you want to be financially free and not work again. I know because I've got to one million, five million, ten million, you know, and beyond. Um, you probably need between five and ten million pounds if you're 30, 40 years old. I mean, if you're 80, you might only need a million. But if you've got mm -hmm. 50 years left in you, 5% return on the capital, you need. You probably need five million. So I retired sort of semi-retired when I'm a, I became a millionaire. And then I, I went through this process. I wrote the book behind me there, Life Leverage, five years ago. 
I retired again after that and went traveled the world with my son playing in the all of his world golf championships. Um, so I've had journeys along the way where I've got myself out and then got back in and got myself out and got back in. Now, me getting back in is because I am the perennial serial um, cookie jar entrepreneur. I just can't help starting another company and put my hand in the cookie jar. Can't help, yeah, yeah. you know, writing another book or setting up a new enterprise. But um, like I, I, we knew before the lockdown, there was a change coming because it's been 12 years since the last recession. So we were planning many things to disrupt ourselves, going fully online, going global, not just national, creating some courses which are um, internationally translatable because some of our UK specific ones aren't. So mm -hmm. really, I, I wanted to get out of the business, scale the business, systemize the business, hire an MD, hire trainers, continually make myself redundant because I wanted to be able to grow the companies way beyond me. And I didn't want them to need me because if they need me, then there's risk. Yeah, absolutely. So you've you've had, for lack of a better term, just a growth mindset across this whole thing, whether it's growing one side of the business or enabling some of it to operate without you um, or, or simply trying to grow and reach more people with your message. But I imagine it wasn't always that way. You were trying to get your first property, then your second, and they get to the cash flow to, to be financially free, right? So let's yeah. back up in your story real quick to where you, you really first began and, and talk to us about what that part of your journey was like. Yeah, so um, I'm 41 now. And I started as an entrepreneur properly um, when I was 27, just turned 27. And when I started, I wanted to get out of debt because I was in debt. And I was 50,000 UK pounds sterling in debt. So what's that? 65-ish thousand dollars. Right. I mean, you know, it was a lot of money to be in debt. You did well to get that much in debt at that age. Unless you just go to college because that's that's what yeah. most college yeah. kids come out of these days, right? Yeah, go to college in America, job done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so um, that was my first goal to get out of debt through starting a company because I met my business partner sort of at the end of 2006 and we just sort of struck it off. Um, once I'd got out of debt, I was thinking, I want to make five grand a month. That's a lot of money. And then I want to make 10 grand a month. That's a lot of money. And then, you know, Mark and I had a dream. I want a Ferrari, he wants a Lamborghini, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I soon realized maybe maybe two years in, this quest for more was never going to end and I was always going to want more. And also, it couldn't be wholly selfish. And I'll give you an example here because people say this all the time on social media and I just, you know, there's a few things I just want to slip in to go back to the answer the question, Hans. So the first thing is there's a lot of people out there, you know, publicly saying, I want to be a millionaire, I'm going to be a billionaire, you know, I want to be really successful, I want to be the biggest in my industry, blah, blah, blah. No one cares about that. No one cares if you want to be a millionaire or a billionaire. No one cares. Unless, of course, you being a millionaire and a billionaire directly helps them. Or they want to be what you are. What people care about is that you offer value to them and that you're useful. And there's a quote, and um, I was always saying this, and I didn't realize I was sort of paraphrasing the greats like Peter Drucker and John Maxwell and people like that. But um, success should not be the goal valuable being valuable should be the goal um and, and i once i made a few million pounds and i realized well 
once you get to five and 10 million plus, and then, you know, there's, I've interviewed so many billionaires on my podcast. There's a billionaire and then there's going to be a hundred billionaires soon. So I started to look at trying to become more useful to people instead of being more successful or being more wealthy. And when you take the mindset of being useful to people and valuable, you focus on service, you focus on caring, you focus on creating a good product, you focus on aftercare, you fo focus on creating newer, better versions of your product. So I'm going to create um, a fifth year uh, anniversary version of Life Leverage. I don't have to. Um, mm -hmm. but it's five years. And I'm, I'm going to do that. I do two videos a day on social media. You didn't ask me to have live stream this out to, to my some of my pages, Hans, but I did that so you can get more reach and more value. And, and it seems that the more I focus on being valuable and useful, one, my self-worth goes up. Two, that's a, not an endless pursuit because that is that makes you feel amazing and mm -hmm. you can never get enough of that. And three, that's actually what the world wants. The world wants you to be useful and valuable. So since then, that's what I've been trying to do with my companies. Now, I'm developing 215 rental units right now. We've bought a couple of big um, sort of essentially sort of big shops, um, almost like mini shopping centers. Um, and when when they're done, which will be this time next year, there'll be 215 rental units we'll have that will go to our letting agency that Mark and I will hold. Now, that is 215 tenants who have got 215 roofs over their head, you know, who've got really great amenities, who we've done a really nice apartment for and made it look new and feel new. And, of course, there's loads of uh, – that's right in the town centre, which and, and our town centre needs a lift. And then all the taxes generated from it. So you can be commercial and be valuable. So that's really how I've evolved. I've gone from selfish getting out of debt, selfish making enough money, realised I've made enough money. From now, it's all about more and more value to society and, and, and making a more of a global impact now, Hans. And break this down for us a little bit, because you, you mentioned early on, it was like getting to five a uh, thousand a month and then 10,000 and then the Ferrari and the Lamborghini, like there's sort of those, those numbers or those physical items that can drive you to a certain point, right? Like a certain point of success of, of seeing something in the bank or driving a car or having a house. And I hear this a lot on social media and on different podcasts. And there's a, so I'm curious what your take on it is like, at what point is it sort of, Oh, quote unquote, okay to be selfish and have those sort of like material goals? And then at what point should you flip over into what you're talking about, providing yeah. value and being valuable to people? Like where, where do you draw the line in your journey? Well, mine was a linear journey because I hadn't been on the journey. But in reality, I don't think you can split them. So I think what most people do in life, especially when you look at COVID opinion, you know, should we go in lockdown, shouldn't we? you know, election, Biden or Trump, the world and social media is great at polarizing and creating duality, black mm -hmm. and white, right or wrong, left or right, good or bad. But in reality, no single event or human being, in my experience and opinion and research, is fully good or bad, fully left or right, fully right or wrong. Um, so I believe probably the ideal balance is to balance being selfish and selfless simultaneously. Like if you make a hundred million pounds and give it all away and you can't even feed and clothe yourself, you are self-negating. If you make a hundred million pounds and buy a hundred million pounds worth of opulent items and don't ever give any to, to be useful and valuable to at least your community, then you are self-aggrandizing and being selfish. 
So uh, the selfish drive is very important. There's quite a lot of people out there, you know, maybe a little bit spiritual or, you know, or a bit anti-commercial, you know, a bit like, well, profit is evil um, and, you know, being commercial is evil. It's not. Um, you cannot serve if you don't make profit. You have to be solvent in a company to be able to look after your clients. If you're mm-hmm. not making profits, you could be insolvent and trading insolvently is actually illegal. So um, you need to be solvent and make a fair profit so that you can reinvest into growth, into innovation, etc., cetera, um, which serves society. And I guess in my journey, I was probably either more on the side of selfish when I was most in need myself. And now probably I'm a bit more on the side of selfless because I've got a foundation. I've just partnered up with the Prince's Trust here in the UK, who are, you know, the, you know, basically the Royal Family's Trust for Entrepreneurship. Right. Um, I'm, I'm giving a lot of more of my time away. I do hours a day of calls and giving back and my own foundation. But self-worth will come from what you give, not just what you take. Um, but of course, if your net worth goes up, then you're going to feel like you're moving forward, you're progressing, you've, you're, you're getting reward for what you do. So I would say try and balance the selfish with the selfless. Now, a really good company with a really good product, that balances the selfish and the selfless because what fair exchange, as I call it, um, well, one of my mentors, John Demartini, um, taught me this, but as, as I would define it, Fair exchange is the balance between you making fair profit and loving what you do and that being sustainable and scalable and your client getting really good value and loving your product and service and recommending it. That's fair mm-hmm. exchange. Too much selfishness is unfair exchange in, in your favor. Mm-hmm. Too much selflessness is unfair exchange in the favor of the client because we all know coaches, consultants, trainers, who've spent $50,000 training and they don't know how to get a client and they're giving all of their sessions away for free to get recommendations and testimonials. And then they Mm -hmm. just end up presenting the very people who are taking their free stuff from them, but they're giving it away for free. So, um, yeah, I think we need to get, the problem is extremities are good for social media, aren't they? They're good sound bites. This is right. right, This is wrong. You know, all right. Apple or, um samsung iphone or um android it's it's so true it's finding in every business and every entrepreneur every single person is going to find that balance for themselves and i just i mean it's such a complicated question to try and unpack but it's it's there's probably also especially listening to your story there's seasons of it there's points at which you were in debt fifty thousand pounds and you probably had to be pretty self-focused and a little and quote unquote selfish to get out of debt. Because if you're in that much debt, you're probably not helping a lot of people, but then that starts rolling and you get some success, you get out of debt, you start making good and better money and now you can start to give back more. So there's also maybe a seasonality to this that um, that is important to recognize. And I think a lot of people, myself included, drive, drive, drive on the selfish side. And a lot of us don't look up and start to think like, okay, maybe I do have enough. Maybe it is time to start giving back and focusing more on external giving and value as opposed to just driving more leads and more eyeballs and more dollars and more whatever. And mm-hmm. and you, it sounds like have actually found a nice balance for yourself um, and, and shifting that 
over into uh, kind of the other way um, of doing things with with all of the different mediums that you're working on right now? Yeah, I'm again, I'm trying to think ahead. Um, and actually, you asked me to define being a disruptive entrepreneur. It's probably thinking ahead. So, you know, I've read thousands of books. I'm a great lover and learner of personal development, listen to thousands of podcasts, so, so many great mentors, you know, in the 15 years I've been doing business properly. Um, so one of the things that I noticed is most people who were philanthropists were 60 or 70 years old. And I thought, no, I'm going to start my foundation earlier. So I wrote my book, Money, which um, in the UK is the best-selling book on money um, there. And I launched my foundation at the same time when I was 37 years old. Um, and I, all the profits from my book, Money, go to my foundation. It's quite, it's quite young for a philanthropist right. to be 37. Um, you know, like I said, they're normally 60s plus. And I, I'd interviewed a few billionaire philanthropists on my podcast um, and I got to know a couple of people who were philanthropists. And I thought, well, I don't have to wait. So if you're thinking ahead all of the time, um, thinking about, OK, all right, I might have to start my business now and make some dollars. But what's my contribution to my community, my country, my continent and, and the planet going to be? You know, and, and maybe when you start business, your contribution is half an hour a day and your work is seven and a half hours a day. But in 10 years, when you're worth 10 million or 50 million or whatever is enough to you it can be the other way around. You only have to work half an hour a day and your seven and a half hours a day can be public speaking, podcasts, content, value, doing, you know, mentorships and supporting foundations. So really it's just thinking not just weeks ahead, but years ahead. How do you encourage people to, to guide the conversation of what is enough? Because that obviously is different for each person, but Nonetheless, is it very challenging thing to even come to grips with in your own mind, but then actually then pursue? Um, how, how do you, with entrepreneurs and anyone else that you talk to, how do you guide people with that advice? Right. Well, this is another, it's a great question, Hans, and I, I think it should be talked about a lot more. Um, and it's another example that you cannot say when is enough. There is no destination. It's a paradox. And the paradox of when is enough is that um, humanity and nature and evolution don't ever want you to stop. Because as soon as you stop, you can become a drain on society and a drain on resources. Um, and you will ultimately die out and get evolved out. And evolution is about um, constant improvement. So one of the reasons I think entrepreneurs have this constant hunger for more is because it's built within our nature because humanity needs to evolve and we need to react against a, an ever um, more tough environment that we're in. The paradox is that um, that can feel like you're chasing something that you never reach. And that can be very frustrating and disheartening and disillusioning. So for me, um, trying to go to either one of those polarities is going to create um, strong emotional tension and, and um, pain and resistance within you, i.e., uh, I'll stop now, that's enough. Well, you, I've stopped five times. I've retired five times, and um, it is not what it's cracked up to be. Um, yeah. and, and so you stop too early, you're bored. An entrepreneur will go and create mess and chaos. The, the boredom will just kill them because nature is calling us to do more because it needs us to be valuable. But then on the on the other side of it, if you're relentless and you never give yourself credit and you never stop, you can end up burning yourself out. 
Mm-hmm. So I think what you want to do is take these two paradox, paradoxical po- polar opposites and try and merge them together, which is to um, always desire to grow and serve more, but appreciate what you've done along the way. So you can set yourself little benchmarks, your first 100 grand in revenue, your first million, your first 5 million, your first 10 million, your first investment property, your 10th investment property, your first book, your fifth book, and actually acknowledge yourself along the way of all of these checkpoints that you hit and and feel grateful and worthy and enough in what you've done. Pat yourself on the back, celebrate it, have a quick look back and go, wow, look how far I've come. Bathe in that glory for an hour, a day, a week, and then move on to the next checkpoint. And then that, if you're a proper entrepreneur, that will stop when you die. Well said. Are you someone who promotes setting goals? Like you were just saying, your first 100K, million, whatever it is, and having like those measurable, uh, achievable goals? Or are you someone who lives more on the side of like, setting principles for yourself and and using um you know those types of principles to help you make decisions or is it some type of hybrid for you yeah again i I think as soon as you try and take me on an extreme i'm going to try and bring it back into balance so i can see that yeah yeah i think goals are vital um because they if anything, they just stop you being distracted and procrastinating and overwhelmed and all over the place, and they actually just get you on a linear path. So for that very reason, they're brilliant. By the way, you'll set if, you, if you're wise, you'll set a lot of goals, and if you're a proper entrepreneur, you won't hit all of them. Um, I'm, I'm interviewing on my podcast Mark Victor Hansen, who wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul, mm-hmm. and um, I remember seeing him speak, and I used to set like five goals a year, and he said, oh, I set hundreds of goals, and I was like, whoa. Well, and he said, well, you know, if I miss half of them, fine. I still hit half of them. I want to push myself to grow. So I set a lot of goals. Um, but I also allow myself when it's obvious to me that that goal was just part of the journey and that wasn't actually the goal. You've got to be flexible enough to pivot and to change that goal. Um, you've got to allow some serendipity as well as some, you know, hardcore linear obsessive focus. So I think goals are really important, but I don't kill myself if I don't achieve every one. It's just making me move forward. Principles now, yeah, or values. I think these are a great thing to live by. And I, I think, um, you know, living by a set of guiding principles, I don't think many people do that. I think it's a great thing to do. And if I'm honest, mine are probably more intrinsic and felt within me than they are written in the list of 10 commandments I live by. Um, not that I'm a religious person, but the 10 commandments are a great set of commandments to live by. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've probably just inspired me, Hans, to actually sit down and, and consider writing out what my core life principles are. Because the problem with me is I like to do so many things. I've probably got 150 principles. But, you know, I, I, as I turned 14, I've got two children. And, um, you know, we had one of our best years ever last year. Revenue-wise, we're well over um, the 20 million. We've built developing these hundreds of property units. You know, our business is bigger than it's ever been. But I also had probably the hardest year of my whole life. And I had many disruptions across many different areas. And that really got me to reevaluate what's important to me. You know, and family and kindness and being valuable to people and managing my emotions and understanding that we're all going through a load of shit and inspiring and empowering and lifting people up. All of those things 
I mean, they're always important to me, but they've become even more important to me. Now I'm 41 and now, uh, you know, I'm, and when I went through a challenging year. So I think your guiding principles can change. I think when your self-worth goes down, you tend to want to give more. Um, I, I think when you're challenged and things are hard for you, you tend to want to give more. But um, I'm going to go and write some principles after this, Hans. <laughs> right on. Well, I'm glad I can inspire you on that one because <laughs> it's something, I, I mean, as an athlete, as a young entrepreneur, that's something that I have struggled with, frankly, is setting all those goals because life, as we know, is fluid. In January, no one was thinking about coronavirus, at least mm. not to the degree that we are now. And yeah. to, if I would, and I set goals in January for you know revenue targets and what have you, um, and I had to totally change all of that come March when we in California went on to lockdown. Mm. And, and instead of having those solid, strict goals, having still having goals and targets, but having also those principles helps you make those fluid pivots, in my opinion, a little bit more easily. That said, writing them down and actually living them is, is a lot harder because that requires a very honest dialogue with yourself and and frankly, some introspection that a lot of us, it's scary to do. And it's you know something that ugh, I don't know if I want to go down in those dark places inside myself and figure that out. So it's, I mean, by no means is it a, an easy thing to accomplish, um, but probably a worthwhile one if you actually committed some time to it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, when I do my goals, I do be goals, do goals, have goals. So I actually do write how I want to be known as a person and the difference that I want to make. So I guess those things would probably be principles. But I think it's a great idea to write them down. You know, you, you may come up with like, like the Ten Commandments. You might come up with 10 core principles to live by. And that would be how you'd want to raise your children and how you'd want to develop the culture in your organization. I think it's a fantastic thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Rob, I, I, again, seriously appreciate your time uh, being on the show. I We could keep going on goals and entrepreneurship and all this all night for you, but uh, I want to respect your evening. Um, so I'm going to transition us to the last section of the show called the Focus Five, which is the same five questions I ask every guest on every show. Are you ready? I'm ready. First question, you've written a lot of them, but what book have you gifted most often? Probably... The Rise and Fall and Rise Again by Gerald Ratner. He was famous in the UK for the biggest corporate gaffe in history where he did a public speech, vicariously criticised his products, and then in the ensuing years, everything unravelled. And Total Recall by Arnold Schwarzenegger, his autobiography. If you could get an hour of somebody's time, past or present, live or dead, and ask as many questions as you wanted, who would that person be and why? I always want to say someone else as who I'm going to say. I don't know why, um, but I can never look past Arnold Schwarzenegger because um, I've actually met him and spent some time with him, but it's, it was not enough. I think to be so successful in so many different disciplines, I think to be so positive um, and inspire so many people, um, he's big into property, he must have so many different income streams. He just seems like a fun guy to be around. So um, Arnold Schwarzenegger is always my answer. But I'm going to give you a different one because this is always my answer and I like to bring different content to every um, interview I do. The Dalai Lama is someone I'm following on social media and I really like his views on compassion. And um, 
I, you know, I have a staff of nearly 100 people. We're a bit less after COVID, but, you know, we'll, we'll soon be back up there. And what I find is when one staff member comes to you and they're not performing, there's often some shit going on at home, you know, some stuff that's really affecting them or or they're not getting on with their manager or there's a reason. And when someone comes to you criticising someone else, well, then there's two sides to a story. Mm-hmm. And so many people I know have had such difficult, horrendous things happen to them. One of my lovely um, followers and clients, Malcolm, Malcolm Pollock, um, both his son and his dad passed away in COVID. I mean, imagine losing your son. I mean, it's just, um, you know, I I could tell you a thousand stories of, you know, followers of mine who've been through a lot of hardship. So compassion and, and, and managing your emotions and trying to understand that we're all just trying to do the best we can. That, uh, the Dalai Lama's are into that a lot, and I'm inspired by that at the moment. So the Dalai Lama, I'd love to get him on my podcast, but it's not going to be that easy. Yeah. That'd be a good, <laughs> good podcast guest, no doubt. Yeah. What is one thing that you believe that most people would disagree with you on? It's good to learn from your mistakes. I think most people don't learn from their mistakes because I think mm-hmm. we're habitual creatures. Therefore, the mistake we make one time, we make 100 times. I think it's far better to learn from the mistakes of other people vicariously so you don't have to make them yourself. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. How do you like to start your day? So I get up anywhere between 5.15 and 5.45 a.m. I go to my local Costa Coffee and get a medium skinny cappuccino with an extra shot. Um, I go up, I've built like a studio music room here. The lighting's not quite right. As you can see, we're still building it, but it's above my, um, I've got a, a garage for my cars and we build it above there um, and I'll go up there and I'll do my strategy, my vision and my key result area tasks. So it might be preparing all of my content, writing my books, you know, looking at our vision, our, our partnerships, our global reach. And I'll do that until um, about 8.15. Um, I always have a porridge and a protein shake with lots of sort of healthy supplements in for breakfast. Um, at 8.30, I'll do my one of my two lives a day um, at 8.30 a.m. till 9. 9 till 10, I go to the gym. 10, I get my second coffee. And then I do more work, usually writing and creating content. Um, and then from 12 onwards, I, I usually keep the rest of the day free. Though if there are meetings to be had, like board meetings and staff meetings and other meetings, whether they're Zoom or face-to-face, they might be put in usually at the um, – one o'clock or the two o'clock slot. Um, And then I always have dinner with my family every day. And then I'll keep the seven or the 8 p.m. slot free because I'm I'm doing an interview a day normally uh, like this. I watch a a bit of Netflix and then hopefully the chill part with my wife afterwards. But, you know, my routine is a dream. (laughs) (laughs) Love it, man. Well, Rob, Really, again, appreciate you coming on. Um, For my audience, where is the best place we can connect with you online? Well, I mean, as we're on a podcast, listening to my podcast, A Disruptive Entrepreneur, but just search my name, Rob Moore, M-O-O-R-E. You can find me on all social media. I'm pretty prolific on all of the channels. You know, my books, I've got um, a second podcast called Money. You can find all my stuff there. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you, Hans. You know, I got to say, the thing that I really liked about Rob is he's always 
learning. He's always adjusting. He's always trying to figure out exactly where the middle is, um, you know, where the balance is, if you will, uh, for him. And that's came true in all of his scenarios. If you want to connect with him, obviously hit him up on all the social media platforms, which I have down in the show notes. You can find out a lot more content about him, what he's doing, um, and hopefully learn a little bit more from him. And if you got some value out of this, please head over to whatever podcast player you're on or your uh, one of choice, leave it a rating and review so we can get a little bit more uh, growth, get in front of a few more people. And of course, uh, get a little more feedback to learn how to provide you guys, the listeners with just a little bit more value. So without any further ado, guys, my name is Hans Drazina. I'm the host of Another Way to Play. And remember to make every chapter better than the last.